Well, hello, everyone. Hello. I'm really excited to be going on a mission trip because after I lay this sermon on all of you, you will have no appropriate way to contact me for a week. Um, I'm only half joking right now. Um, Can we get the slides up? There we go. Okay. I forgot the name of the sermon, so I needed to see it. Um, So the sermon title today is, What Would I Say to Me? Um, And as we come to the end of this series, we're going to be talking about how we model discipleship, how we pass it down. Um, And I want you to know, this is, in my head, what I'm thinking about is 40 years from now, when I'm 75, what would I want to say to me to make sure I finished well. Because that's a huge part of what we're talking about when we talk about discipleship. When we talk about iron sharpening iron, we're talking about what we're passing on, how we're shaping that next generation, and how we're making sure that what we shape is worthwhile. It's not just about am I righteous, but it's about what I'm passing down. It's about my daughter, the community I'm a part of, my family, and and it's, it's, it's a bigger thing than just Did I do good or bad? It's a question of what did I contribute to, a righteous culture or a wicked culture? So we're going to jump into it in a moment, but first let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, We thank you first off for all the young lives about to go on this mission trip and those who are less young lives. Um, We pray that you would just be blessing our group on this trip. Um, I pray for the ways you're going to shape us that we have no idea are coming. I pray for the conversations we're going to have and the way your spirit's going to move. I pray that you would give us a willingness and openness to follow after your word and follow after the promptings of your spirit. I pray the same for today for our audience. I pray that you would give us all ears to hear the message from your word. I pray these would be your words. They wouldn't be mine. I pray that today we would take responsibility, we would repent, we would confess and forsake of what we are doing wrong and that we would move towards righteousness together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, Jess and I have been living in our current house for about four years. Um, Thank you, Beth Manzella. Um, But uh, in front of our house, there's this little square of grass that when we moved in, we said there needs to be a tree there. And so our first year in the house, we didn't really have time. Moving into a house is different than moving into an apartment, is what I learned. Um, Having to do yard work is the worst, the best, the best. Um, Jess likes yard work, but she's pregnant, so I do all the yard work. So um, that's not true. She does more yard work than I do, even though she's pregnant. Um, But it feels like I'm doing more than usual. Anyways, I bring this up because uh, three years ago, Um, we decided we're going to buy a tree. And so we researched what's a fast-growing tree, and then we wanted a tree with meaning. And there are trees called dogwood trees, and and they're supposed to, when they go into bloom, it's this beautiful bloom, and there's like this old poetry about how it represents the blood of Christ and the nails in his hands and feet and the crown of thorns, and it's this, this beautiful picture of the gospel on a tree. And so I was like, that's the kind of tree I want. So if someone says, oh, I think your tree's beautiful... I can tell them, oh, let me tell you how beautiful it is. 
And so I'm going to show you a picture of our tree. (laughs) That's our beautiful dogwood tree three years later. In the season when it should be blooming. This is not in the middle of the winter, as evidenced by all the green around it. Now here's the question. The first question is, why is this tree not thriving? This is a tree that should absolutely thrive in the zone we're in. It should have taken very little work. Well, there's a lot of answers. Perhaps this tree died, and this is a multiple choice test. The microburst from a few years ago happened shortly after we planted it, destroying its roots. Like a month after, if you remember the microburst when like for like five minutes in our community, it was like, oh my gosh, the world is ending, we're in a hurricane. And then like five minutes later, it was like, oh, it's over. Um, If you don't remember that, you don't live on 2nd Street in Huntley because our entire street, just every tree limb was down. And this little tree that had just started putting roots in, the whole storm was just flopping around and then eventually the roots pulled out, but it just kind of stayed there. So after the storm, I put it back in. You might wonder if it's because of the heat wave from earlier this summer, right? Because earlier this summer, if I, if I would have taken a picture, you'd see like there was like one set of green leaves there and then one set like up there. So we could blame it on the heat wave. You might say there was an extremely cold winter the year it was planted because I still remember Jess and I looking out the window wondering, will that tree still be alive after one of those like negative 20 degree days? And we we're like, well, we'll find out. It could be all of the above, or if we're going to be really honest, oh man, I typoed, and I knew I typoed, and I didn't fix it. The ones, ones, it's spelled wrong, that should be O-N-E-S, the ones responsible for this tree did a terrible job taking care of it, expecting it to tend itself despite ample warnings that the tree was dying. It's that one. It's that one. Um, And if I am being really honest with you all, earlier this year when it only had two, and just, I'm sorry, um, just doesn't know this one. Earlier this year, I noticed nothing was blooming. And I went in our shed and I grabbed a bunch of miracle Grow and like we've got other fertilizer and just dumped it on top. (laughs) And just to see what would happen. Because I was like, I mean, at this point, what have we got to lose? And then those two green (laughs) things just went away. Um, And so this is a completely dead tree. And we watched it die the last three years. We've watched it die the last three years. And as it was dying, we started talking about, well, what, what do we do? And we didn't do anything. And now we're talking about, well, what do we replace it with instead of, should we replace it? Should we be okay with replacing it? What makes us think we're going to do anything better this time? We have a history as a couple of killing plants. Now, Jess, I will say those hydrangeas behind there, Jess brought those things to life. So she's better at this than I am. But this tree died while those responsible for it looked on and just let it get worse and worse and worse. We're in our series, Sharpened Iron, and our big idea for this series is I want to understand God with such integrity that it does not matter what arises I am able to respond with wise action that leads others to begin to understand God in the same way and do the same types of actions. We're really focused today on does our understanding, our integrity, and wisdom lead others to start to live in the same way. And so the question for today 
The question of is our discipleship effective, the question of is our church body building towards righteousness or wickedness, the question is simply this. How can I make sure my understanding, integrity, and wisdom are building up righteousness? How can I make sure the tree's alive? And what can I do when it starts to die? Now, to do this, we need to kind of go backwards and we need to understand what we've talked about the last three weeks. The first week we talked about understanding, and we were talking specifically about understanding God's word on its terms. Proverbs 28 and 29 gives us this framework for you need to do all of these things together if you want to build towards a righteous culture. And the first thing is understanding God's word, and we talked about costly understanding. And that week we said it's about allowing my life to be reshaped by what God says is righteous and wicked, even when the outcome is me coming to understand where I am acting in wickedness. It's about having the knowledge and understanding built around this to know whether what we're doing matches what God would have us do. It's about recognizing he has a definition of good and evil and following it, even when it's hard. Next, we talked about integrity. And if you remember, I said integrity is critical thinking and action and critical thinking about God's word and action. It's not just I did the right thing, but I knew why I did the right thing. And I did it for the right reasons. That's integrity. Costly integrity is an active recognition that living righteously is built on principles that come from the Creator and involves critical thinking that leads to acting in obedience to God's commands, which fulfill the purposes for which humans were created. Last week we talked about wisdom, and I talked about my definition of wisdom is it's understanding. How you, got, how you were shaped the way you're shaped, understanding your shape, and being a part of helping yourself be shaped the right way going forward, and then being a part of a community doing the same. It's about being shaped towards righteousness intentionally. Costly wisdom is demonstrated by having a continual pattern of recognition and reflection on how sin is shaping us towards wickedness, God is shaping us towards righteousness, asking why we are trending whichever way and taking steps to be shaped towards righteousness. Today we're going to talk about modeling. And we're going to talk about how we make sure if we're doing these three things well, they pass on, and how we should measure if our modeling is is worthwhile and how we should measure if this is all worthwhile in the first place. Now, a reminder, we have to do our quick Proverbs things. Um, Proverbs 27.17 is the verse we're kind of building on. Proverbs 27.17 says, iron sharpens iron, and one man or one person sharpens another. And we have to remember that discipleship is not just towards righteousness. It could also be away from it. Because this passage doesn't say Christians, when they get together, always make each other better. This passage says we're being sharpened one way or the other. We, we cannot assume that we're being sharpened the right way unless we have right understanding, integrity, and wisdom. The book of Proverbs is a book of principles, not promises. So as we read the passage today, we need to remember we're going to read essentially that if you, if you raise your child the right way, they'll do all the right things. And some of you are going to say, pfft, pfft, right? I mean, let's be honest. Some of you are going to be like, I, I have no idea what happened to my kid. And others of you are going to be like, I wish I knew that when I had kids. I, the, I, I joke here, but, but the thing is, is that the book of Proverbs does not say if you do all the right things, all the right things will happen. It's the ideal in a sinless world, these principles would always be true. But because we live in a fallen world, we have to account for that. But these are the things we should do 
regardless of whether they turn out to be principles or whether they turn out to be promises. Um, Proverbs 28 and 29 is about righteous culture building or wicked culture building. Each week we've seen it starts off when the righteous increase, when the wicked increase, when the righteous. One's increasing or the other. All of these black bars represent a place where it talks about that. Either the righteous are increasing or the wicked. You got one or the other, and you're either building a culture one way or you're building it the other. Finally, Proverbs 28 and 29 is designed with a clearly defined kingdom in mind. For the people who put together Proverbs 25 through 29, where this passage comes, they are thinking about Israelites and the kingdom of Israel, not about the surrounding kingdoms. For us today, we need to start as Christians in the kingdom of God, which is the church, thinking about our culture inside the church. Now, yes, this is absolutely for the rest of the world, if they follow Jesus as king. And so our job, before we start telling them you're doing wrong, is to tell them about the king whose kingdom they could join. And so this is for everyone, but as a church, it's not our job to assign these passages to the rest of the world. It's our job to think, are we doing this righteously? That's where we start each week. So we're going to answer the question, how can I make sure my understanding, integrity, and wisdom are building up righteousness? And to do that, we're going to jump into our passage now, When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will look upon their downfall. Proverbs 29, 16 goes on, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Now this verse is modeling. If if you've done Proverbs 28, 1 through 29, 16, well, when you come to 29, 17, if you're disciplining your son based on those last three things, he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. It goes on after that verse where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Now, um, a lot of you have probably, this is one of my biggest pet peeves that I don't have time for, but we're just going to go in a minute. Um, Where there is no vision, the people perish is like a modern quote that gets used all the time. If you ever go to like work seminar things where they talk about how can our company do better and blah, 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 blah. I've heard it many times. I've heard it quoted many times. I've seen people, authors, use it in books on excellence and leadership. But they miss when they do it. They take this proverb and they take the whole meaning out of the proverb because the proverb is prophetic vision. That's one Hebrew word, and the word behind that word in Hebrew is about someone speaking the words of the Lord. Where no one speaks the word of the Lord, the people cast off restraint. And the imagery of cast off restraint is the same imagery as when the Israelites are worshiping a golden calf while Moses is up on a mountain where they see the cloud of the presence of God up there. When the people do not have a prophetic vision, a prophetic voice speaking to them, even in the sight of the evidence of God, they'll go wild. But blessed is he who keeps the law. That's understanding. Integrity, by mere words, the servant is not disciplined, for though he understands, he will not respond. If you have understanding and you don't take action, what do you actually have? Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That is the exact opposite of wisdom. Whoever pampers his servant from childhood will in the end find him his heir. And the language here. I love the language here. The language here is if you pamper your servant or your child, if you pamper the one you're responsible for, when it says, well, in the end, find him his heir, what it's saying is you will find this person 
to be all the things about yourself you don't like. That's the language behind this. All the sins that you don't want them to have that you have, you're going to watch them multiply in your child. It's kind of depressing. It's going to get worse. So, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Note, it doesn't say a man of wrath lives with much strife in his life. It says stirs up strife. The people around them, it's modeled outward, and it goes outward. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. The partner of a thief hates his own life. He hears the curse, but discloses nothing. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. And finally, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. That word abomination brings with it some harshness. This isn't just, ooh, that's gross. Or like if you're a boy and you play video games, I bet there's a bad guy called the abominator. Man, I had an idea and I lost... Adam, abominator? No? (laughs) Go with it. Okay. Um, But abomination is the idea of the exact opposite. It's a fierce word. It's a these cannot coexist. And so if one's way is straight, the wicked will not stick around. And someone might say, well, then we're just going to scare all the wicked off. And I know I'm wicked because I know I sin. But the the thing is, the one who's wicked is going to have to start to change towards righteousness in a righteous culture. But in a wicked culture, the one who is righteous is either going to have to stand or start to change. And they're going to be shaped one way or the other. Senior citizens, I love you. I love SOS. You guys know when you guys meet, if I'm around, I'll come eat food with you. And I love talking to you. I love being here on Fridays. If the next generation has a cheap understanding, integrity, and wisdom, the question is not what's wrong with that generation. The question is what's cheap about your understanding, integrity, and wisdom. If the tree's dying, don't ask what the tree's doing wrong. If the tree's dying, someone's got to say, maybe we should go take care of it. Maybe we should do anything before it's already dead and we start throwing fertilizer on it. A generation that judges younger generations is judging its own ability to disciple. That word judge, we don't like that word in the church, and the reason we don't like that word in the church is because we, we like to pretend like we're not supposed to judge, but we are supposed to judge. But we're supposed to judge in the church. We're supposed to judge, are we moving towards righteousness or wickedness? The word accountability never actually shows up in the Greek Bible. Under accountability, every time is the word judge. We're supposed to tell each other when we're doing wrong and help each other correct in a loving way inside of relationships. Not just looking at someone saying, you're doing that wrong and yelling but working together towards righteousness. To older generations, when you look at the younger generations and you say, what is going wrong? You're talking to yourselves. In 2018, 2019, there was a Pew Research poll. And in that poll, they asked, what religion do you identify as? And the silent generation, those born 1928 to 1945, 84% of them identify as Christian. Now, before I go further, 
identifying as Christian and being Christian are two very different things. Um, I think all of these numbers are, are overly optimistic because a lot of people say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Easter and Christmas. And, and if we've learned anything the last three weeks, I don't think that necessarily makes you a Christian. But the point is they at least identify as it. They're at least like Christian adjacent. They're at least willing to say, well, I think there's value to it. Maybe they don't live it out, and that's a different conversation. But the baby boomer generation, 1946 to 64, 76% identify as Christian. The generation X, 1965 to 1980, 67%. The millennials, that's my generation, 1981 to 1996, 49% identify as Christians. And I read that number and I go, you got to be kidding me. That's a really high number. It's depressing. And we need to talk about it. And we need to talk about it and we need to recognize when we talk about it, what are we doing? Well, we're, we're asking older generations to judge their own value of discipleship towards younger generations. And it's, it's really easy to do this. I want to tell you I picked this one because of the bar graph. I could spend the next like four hours just pulling up graph after graph, thing after thing. They all say the same thing. There's not like some hidden gem that says, actually, it's inverted, and now the millennials, all of them believe it. It's nothing like that. And so here's what happens. We decide, well, it's up to them. They're going to do it on their own. We, we, it's not my problem. It's, it's, I'm watching the tree die, but it's not my fault. A dogwood tree is supposed to grow in our climate if it's raining out and stuff. Why on earth do I need to do anything about it? I set it up for success by planting it in the dirt. A generation that doesn't judge younger generations is cowardly. Church, I need to say this, I need to say it this firm. Jess said I shouldn't use that word, and I kept trying to come up with a nicer word. But there isn't a nicer word, because if you're not willing to talk about what the next generation is doing, you're not willing to look at your own discipleship, and it's cowardly, and there's no repentance in it. Now, younger generations, you're probably sitting pretty right now. You're like, oh, this is great. This is great. It's not. It's not, because the end result is you're this, which means this 49%, the Pew Research poll didn't give me any younger age groups, but, but you want to bet that number's gotten smaller? It has. When you, it, any data you can pull up, you're, you're not going to see these numbers starting to miraculously swing the other way. And I think there's a simple reason for it. Nah, the church is dying, but it's not my fault. I'm doing what I need to do. A generation that doesn't take responsibility for what it sees in younger generations is responsible for the rise of wickedness. That's where we need to go. We need to say this out loud, we need to sit in it, and we need to talk about it. And I'm saying this to me 40 years from now, I'm saying it to me now. As I watch our youth ministry numbers just keep going down, as I watch our church trying to figure out how we move forward, this is not just for an older generation, this is for all generations. Because I look at my millennial generation, 49% of us even identify as Christian, and I think, what's that going to be in 10 years, and how do we correct it? How do we move the right direction? And I want to show you the, the framework that I've been talking about. I think this is really cool. I've become recently really nerdy about church history in the United States, um, and I want to show you a cool thing. We, if, if you've listened to the last three sermons, the first week we talked about understanding. Do you know what generation has no understanding at all? The millennials. We are post-truth chumps. We are, no, let's, let's be honest here. The millennial generation stinks. 
I'm a millennial. We don't believe anything is true. We have our own identity for everything. We do all of these things. The way we have been shaped lacks so much logic that we have to logically say, well, it's true for me and that's okay. And then we look around and go, well, if it's true for you, but it's not true for him, is it true? And, and then we say, well, we can't even talk about that. The tree's dying, but to me, that tree's still alive because it's standing there. That's what we do. And so we, under, we understand that the millennial generation does not value truth. We value personal truth, which is the opposite of truth. We value redefining good and evil on our own terms, which is the biblical, it's a biblical definition of sin. We literally value the thing the Bible says we should avoid at all costs. We value it highly. And so let's talk one generation back. We're watching church pastor after church pastor fall. We're watching evangelical institutions crumble left and right. We're finding out about how some of these large denominations have been hiding so much sin. If the millennials lack integrity, it's, or if the millennials lack understanding, it's because they look a generation above and say, if understanding leads to this, we don't want this kind of integrity. We're watching it with big names. And they're fallen. And every time they fall, you wonder, how on earth did they get that way? Well, you got to go back a generation. you got to talk to the boomers. Because the boomers are responsible for a lot of good things. But the one thing I don't think the boomers ever asked when they were responsible for many of these mega churches, they saw these men that were equipped to teach and preach and said, I want to hear him every week. And all of a sudden, we have churches of 5,000 being shepherded by one. And that one person wasn't capable, but that one person just kept building and building and growing and growing. And the structures that were built up were structures that couldn't help but fail. And so what started off good in so many cases, the shape eventually became wicked, and now we're living in that. And so that's why the Gen Xers moved away from what the boomers were doing. And the boomers, I I don't know anything about the silent generation we're saying today, except these patterns started somewhere and they keep going. And I'm being really overly simplistic about it, but it's because we have to talk about it. And to our boomers, my call to you is confess, forsake, move forward, help our younger generations out. And I'm going to give some practical reasons for this. But if the next generation has a cheap understanding, integrity, and wisdom, the question is not what's wrong with that generation. The question is what's cheap about your understanding and integrity and wisdom. To younger generations, let me say this. There are all these church plants that explode. And they, they, they get big names, and all of a sudden, pastors are writing books, and they're doing all these things. And the entire church is younger than the pastor. And there's no wisdom in the church, and eventually you watch the church fall away. Jess and I, the, the church where we did our premarital counseling, every pastor that was involved at that church who we saw and said, that is a godly man. Look at how they fight against the older generations of the church. They've all fallen, compromised to sin. And we look at that and we weep. And the solution is not to say, well, let's go forge our own way. The solution is to say, we need to talk to these older generations and figure out what we're missing. It goes both ways. But older generation, the reason the younger generation doesn't realize it goes both ways is because of what's been modeled for them. This isn't fun. It's not. But we need to talk about it. Because I listen to older generations talk about our younger generations and they're confused. I used to look at our students when I first moved out here, and I was blown away by how little responsibility our students take. Jess was a teacher at a school. When students get in trouble, 
the parents back the students over the teachers. My child had their phone out in class. How dare you take it away? My child was vaping. Are you sure? Yes, we caught them vaping. They said someone threw the vape at them in the bathroom and they just caught it. It's the school's fault my child is getting in trouble. We can laugh about this, but this is what's happening. And I used to think, man, those kids are not willing to take responsibility. And what I've been realizing is those parents of those kids are so unwilling to say, man, what have I shaped? What have I made? What have I done to my child that has led me to be more okay with their wrong actions than the, church dis- or than the school disciplining them? It, it's in the church, too. We got to talk about this. Because we keep seeing generation after generation getting smaller. And we have people say, if we could just go back to what we were, things would be better. And the the question is, well, if we want to go back to whatever it was we thought was good, we need to think about, well, was it good if every generation shrinks more and more and more? I know some people, I actually, I talked to somebody this week who their response to this idea was, well, what about revival? God could just start doing something. To which I say, okay, God could start doing something. Can you be a part of it? That's, that's really what I think, because if we start just thinking, well, it's God's responsibility, God could have just brought that tree back to life in our front yard. I mean, he still could. I'm not pulling it out until after the mission trip, because I've got to figure out what we're going to replace it with. Probably just grass at this point. I think I've learned my lesson. But, but if we just think, well, God will take care of it, then what did God put us here for? Cheap modeling expects each generation to figure it out for themselves. And that's impossible in the first place. When I was, um, like a few months ago, my parents came and visited, and I was blown away by the fact that the way my dad plays with my daughter Lucy, he has all the same moves I have. Which, which really means I learned all those moves from him. Oh, we got a cup, I better put it on my head and let Lucy figure out what to do about it. Oh, we got this thing that Lucy likes playing with this way? I'll hold it upside down and see what she does. Like, like I, I just have like this list of things I do with Lucy. My dad was doing all the same exact things, and I was like, huh. I guess I, re- I, I like subconsciously remember that from when I was one or two, because I, I was just blown away that like all my moves, all my jokes, all of that stuff, my dad does it. And I, I say this because we sometimes think, well, the generation has to figure it out on their own. Everyone's got to do it. We talked about this last week. And do you know what the problem with that is? They were shaped by you, older generations. And I'm a part, I'm, I'm older than I once was. And so I can't just say, it's all you guys, it's me too. But the way they're being shaped is by what we're doing. And so if we say they need to figure out for themselves the way we did, they're not trying to figure out the same thing we are because we've shaped them differently than we were shaped. Cheap modeling puts emphasis on where we wind up rather than who we are now. Jesus does not pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm really excited to be there with you. Amen. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The call of the church is to be on earth the kingdom of God as it is in heaven. Not to say we'll get to be there someday, but to make here and now look more and more like that and to bring more and more people into that kingdom. Cheap modeling focuses on what we gain from our faith for ourselves. 
We've talked about this. Integrity is in the good times, following after the Lord well. It's building up, not just in the crisis moments, but looking and thinking and being connected to God, understanding him, having integrity, seeing how you're being shaped, good and bad. Cheap modeling is when I had a crisis, I went to the church. Costly modeling is going to do something different. And this does not mean when you have a crisis, don't come to the church. That's a part of what our church is for. But if the only time we ever come to the church is in a crisis, and if that's what we think the church is for, we're going to be a church that has no plan for anything except when we're in like the, the triage. And, and we, we want to train up doctors. We don't just want to say, all right, we got one nurse. I don't know if that illustration works, but I hope you get it. Cheap modeling centers faith on the cross and who died on it. I'm going to explain this more in a minute. Um, but I, I want to tell you that a, a way a lot of people understand the gospel in the church lets them off the hook, and it's because they don't understand the gospel presented in the Bible. Costly modeling recognizes how they shape the generations that come after them. It's looking and saying, when I see that happening, and I don't like what I see, what do I need to do to be a part of changing that? How do I course correct? How do I help others course correct the same way? Costly modeling sees the mission of this life as something for our here and now. Yes, we will be in heaven someday. Yes, it will be better than anything else we could imagine. We're citizens of that kingdom now. Let's live like we're a part of that kingdom now. Costly modeling takes seriously that laying down one's life is the cost in order to truly gain it. Jesus talks about to to gain your life, you must lose it. To, to follow Jesus, we're told to bear our cross daily. We're called to lay down our lives for each other in love, inside the church and outside the church. And costly modeling says, I'm going to show that each day. And finally, costly modeling centers faith on the king who died, rose, and reigns. Because it's one thing if Jesus is on a cross and you're saved by his blood. It's another thing if his blood... When you accept his death and the gift of the grace that he has given, the the cost he paid for us to be citizens of his kingdom is an invitation to live like he is king. And if we understand that, we can't just stop with, I'm saved, I'm good, I get to go to heaven. We have to say, what does my king want of me? He who paid the ultimate price, he who paid that cost, it was not a cheap cost. Will I follow him? I got to talk to you about this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And the costly, costly and cheap comes from some of his quotes. I'm not going to read them all because we're running out of time. And also, I didn't put the slides in. Um, and I don't know why. I had them in and then I took them out and then why I need to put those back in. They're not there, I know. But he talks about cheap grace being salvation without confession. He talks about cheap grace being, I'm going to follow God up to the end I want to, but I don't really care what he wants me to do. I'm going to plant the tree and feel good that I know the tree's there, even if it never bears anything. And then he talks about costly grace, and he says the key difference is one grace costs us nothing and costs him nothing. We, we cheapen what he did, because when he sent his son to die for us, he didn't do it because he said, well, I, you know, I just want to do it for whatever. No, he understood the cost from before time itself began. And he knew what he was doing as he was walked to Calvary, as he was killed. He, he knew what was coming 
and he willingly did it. He paid that cost for us. And that was a costly grace, and he invites us to follow and live as if we understand that cost. And I, the reason I bring up Dietrich Bonhoeffer this week, besides the costly and cheap, is because if any man has ever modeled costly modeling, if any man has ever done it, besides Jesus, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of the best examples. You'll note he died in 1945, born in 1906. He was a German theologian. He was a German theologian who spoke against the Nazi party. He was a pastor. He, for a long time, was outspoken, and then as the church became more and more underground and became less and less able to speak in the public squares, what he saw was a number of churches cheapen their gospel message and say, you know what, we're kind of okay with the Nazi stuff as long as we prosper. And he said, we can't do that. And he spoke against it, and eventually there came a point in his life where Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship, what I've been quoting from. And then after that, there came a point, he actually started working as a double agent. He worked as a secret service agent for the Nazi government, as a double agent to get information out of the Nazi government to other places. He became a spy. And then there came a point where things got so bad in Nazi Germany that he had some people, that he who was a German pastor, they got him to New York where he could be saved because he was on his way towards they're going to do something to him because he's outspoken against the Nazi movement. And so they got him to New York, and he was there a little while, and he looked around, and here's what he said. I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. He returned to Germany, Nazi Germany, where he was involved, not a major player, but he was actually involved in the attempt on Hitler's life that failed. And shortly after that, he was killed in a concentration camp. He understood, if I leave, if I just say, it's, it's not my problem anymore, I made it out, everything he would have been doing would have been cheap if he would have said, this is for someone else to deal with. Costly modeling is about seeing what we have been healed from and sinning no more. Costly modeling is about mirroring our king and how we lay down our lives daily. Costly modeling recognizes that the mission is to obey, go, and multiply the gospel, confessing and forsaking anything less. Proverbs 29.1 offers a unifying warning right in the center. We've got, you need the right understanding, you need the right integrity, you need the right wisdom, and then you need to model it well because the proof that you're doing these three well is how the next generation follows in those three things. And right in the middle, there's a warning. He who often is reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. I knew that tree was dying. I saw it. I looked at it. I thought, I should probably do something. But it might rain tomorrow. Wouldn't that help? And now, um, if I go up and touch the branches, they just, they just crack. And they... Um, yeah, so there's our tree. I have a solution. I'm not just going to leave you here. 
glad you're still laughing with me. I have a solution. And I think it's the solution that the church needs in general. And before I get to the solution, I want to say two really important things. The first thing is I really love our church. I, I love our church a lot. I, I am so grateful for the community we have. The goal today is not to tear down what we are, but to say we're moving towards righteousness, but there are some places where I feel like we veer. How do we, get, how do we go closer and closer towards that mark? And I know we're never going to be perfect because if we are a perfect church, none of us would be welcome here, right? I mean, this church would be most effective if humans never entered it. Just kidding, just kidding. But, but I say that, and I also want to tell you, I'm really proud of our small groups that have survived the last 18 months. Um, I've been in a, a small group cohort at, where I meet with a bunch of other small group leaders from other churches, and we've got a guy who coaches us who's like a small group guru, and he tells us all these different things. And one of the things that I've been blown away in almost every meeting is that I go into these meetings, and this isn't bragging about myself, because this all got put into place before I got here. This was Pastor Rich, Pastor Dan. It was the work they were doing. It's the work of our coaches and our small group leaders. I just get to ride the coattails of it because COVID started. Um, So I joke, but um, at all these meetings, as we're talking, I'm over and over able to say, here's what our church is doing. And everyone at these other churches is like, how do we do Like, they're hearing what we're doing, and they're like, man, you guys are healthy. In the middle of COVID, our small group numbers didn't dip, really which I think is pretty insane um, considering that like our, our senior groups, props to you above any other group for figuring out Zoom. So yeah, thank you. Um, our students couldn't figure out Zoom or they, they couldn't figure out Zoom. But um, our, I joke about our students because some were like, oh, I don't know how to get on the Zoom call. And I was like, are you going to school every day? But anyways, I, I start from there because I love what our church does and I think we do a lot of things well. And I'm here today to say the thing that we're missing is that we are generationally divided. And we're trying to do better with this. Um, Something that our church intentionally did in the last couple years is we got rid of our young adults ministry. Not because we don't like our young adults, but because we evaluated the fruit of the ministry over a number of years. And we said, you know what we should do? We should get those young adults with men and women who can help them no longer have the young attached to their name. Because when a whole bunch of young get together, they're still young. The same thing, when a whole bunch of old get together, they're old. Um, Elderly, senior. Sorry, um, I joke with my wife about I shouldn't use certain words and then I use them. But, But here's the thing, here's what we need. And if you're in small groups already, maybe this is for you, maybe this isn't for you. Here's what our church needs. We need our most experienced generations to take responsibility for helping shape younger generations. Younger generations, we also need you to say, I want to be shaped by these older generations. We need you to be willing to say, I don't have it all figured out. And you need to go to them. And they're not just going to tell you they have it all figured out. They're going to say, well, here's what I did. Older generations, if what you take from this is that today you need to go tell people what to do, you're missing the point. We need relationships. We need wisdom. We need to remember that we don't always like being told what to do, and we need to creatively think about how we're going to tell this to younger generations. We need small group leaders prepared to take on the mantle of leading intergenerational small groups. We have like two or three of them that are intentionally moving towards this, and we have others that are doing this intentionally or not, but we need more small groups where the people in the groups aren't all born in the same decade. And, and some of you may say, well, it's like my friend group. These are people I like spending time with. And, and I'm not saying drop out of your small group. 
I'm saying consider and pray, and if the Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart, send me an email this week and say, hey, I'd I'd like to talk about this, because we need more of this. We need so much more of this. Our younger generations are falling away, and they, they think the older generations have nothing to offer. And older generations, if you hear one thing, you have so much to offer these younger generations. And you may say, I'm not ready to be a small group leader, but let me tell you, my theme for this fall is we need critical mass. Our youth ministry needs more than 10 kids to show up because when 10 kids show up, the next week half of them say, well, I'm not going to show up because no one was there. And then the other 10 show up and then the other 10 show up. And then, and then we're like four weeks in and we're like, what happened? For our small groups, what we need is we need people that say, I'm willing to step into this. Whether I'm leading or whether I'm just a part of the group, I'm willing to step into this. I'm willing to say, I'm going to put time into this. I may not like this. This may not be as easy. It's not as fun as when I'm the same age and same... Like, we like hanging out with people who are like us. Jess and I are guilty of this too. It's just what we like to do. But we need people that are willing to step into this. I promise you it will be fruitful. We've watched... I, um, I got permission this time... Adam Baker joined a men's group on Saturday mornings where I think you bring the median age down by a lot. Is that? Yeah, a lot. Um, I, um, and I, I've heard just how blessed he's been in that group. My wife, Jess, is leading a group where there are people younger than her and there are people more, more age oriented. See, I'm trying not to say older than her, but that's the, they're older. There's a wide range of ages in that small group. And Jess didn't have a small group where she sat there like, I got to do 40 things every week to make sure this went. She was in a small group where she was edified by those and she was able to help edify and they were all in the community together. That's what our church needs. If you're interested, I'm going to be gone all week. Send me an email and say, I'm interested. If your email is something weird, make sure you include your name in it, please. Um, So if your email does not include any portion of your name, um, or else I'll respond and say, what's your name again? And then you might feel hurt that I don't know you by your email tag. Matt Johnson at springbrook.org. We need this. We need this because we need to look at our generations and we need to say, how are we as a church planning for Springbrook to be here in 50 years? We need this because we want to be a part of a church that actively seeks to understand God with such integrity that it does not matter what arises We are able to respond with wise actions that helps each other in the world begin to understand God in the same way and do the same types of actions. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, We thank you that you are good. We thank you for all the ways you are providing for our church. Um, Lord, we thank you that this building is open, that there are bodies in all the seats. We thank you for the ways you have financially blessed our church. We thank you for the people you've brought into the church. We thank you for the people we're sending. I don't want to think about that right now, but we, we thank you for just the way you are moving in their lives, and we pray for the churches they are going to be a part of that will bless them even as they bless those churches. We pray, Lord, we pray that you would help us recognize where we're letting trees die. We pray we would recognize where we are just standing by and watching generations go south. We pray we would not be a party to that, but we would intentionally take action. Lord, we we want to pray Psalm 1 over our church. Blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, 
and on that law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water that yield their fruit in season, and their leaves never wither. In all that they do, they prosper. But the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lord, let us be a righteous and flourishing church. Let us help each other live and thrive and grow together. And thank you that your spirit enables us to do it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.